Have you ever done any hiking? Ever gone on a path? Have you ever gone off the path? Have you ever got lost? There can be many reasons why you might go off a path. Uh, you may find something that uh, makes you curious and you want to go see what's over there. And so you go and you wander off to look at it. You may hear what sounds like a wild animal in, front, in the path in front of you, and you may run off the path and get away from it. You may uh, uh, wander off because you are exploring and you are bored with what you are seeing in front of you. There can be lots of reasons why you may go off the path, but then you may find yourself in a hard situation trying to get back to it. And so there you are, lost, needing to return so that you can go back home. And in Malachi 3, that's what God is pleading for his people, to come back to him. In verse 7, he says, Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? God's people had gone away from him, and he was pleading for them to come back to him, to come back home. And in fact, not only the people of Malachi's day, but the Israelites for centuries had been ones who wandered off the path, did not walk with God. We often use that metaphor as a way of talking about our life with him, that we walk with God. He leads us and we follow in his footsteps, or he is by our side and he helps us and we walk alongside him. But the Israelites, for centuries, had wandered off the path, had left God, had gone their own way, and God once again is pleading to his people, return to me, and I will return to you. Now, when I think about the Israelites, I always wondered why they found it so difficult to get back to God, and why they found it so difficult to see the sin that was in their lives and in their nation. In Malachi 3, 5, we looked at these last week. Look at these six sins that they were committing. Witchcraft, adultery, perjury, cheating workers, oppressing widows and orphans, and mistreating the foreigners that were in their nation. Can you imagine oppressing widows and orphans? You know, we talk about stealing candy from a baby and how down low that is. But, you know, when people who are, are weak, who are needy, who are poor, the defenseless among us, the... The orphans and the widows, they were taking advantage of them, oppressing them. It's hard to imagine when this was in their nation that they would ask God, how do we return to you? That was their question, but their question really wasn't a genuine in the sense, well, God, we really want to come back. Show us how we can do it. The tone of this question is, we don't need to come back. There's, there's nothing wrong here. God, we're looking for blessing. You're the one who's to blame. There's no blessing around here. Uh, we don't need to come back to you. What are you talking about, God? And when I think about them, I wonder at times if we are that way. Because I've often looked at them and just thought, how can they be so stupid? I mean, that's really the, what, they, what they're doing. How can they not see the sin that's there? How can they not see how bad things are? How can they not see how far away they are from God? You would think with witchcraft and, and with uh, oppressing widows, you would think something's wrong, and we need to get back to what's right. Well, that wasn't their heart. 
They were blaming God because they were expecting him to bless them. They were blaming God because they weren't experiencing it. They didn't feel like they were far from God. They thought everything they were doing was right. You say, how could they? I wonder if we're not the same at times. That we think our walk with God is okay. And we think that we're close to God. While all the while he's calling to us to return to him. I think this can happen if you think about what happens with our noses. Now, you've seen the commercials for, for, for Breeze, excuse me, air freshener, haven't you? And these are snapshots of some of those commercials where people don't realize how bad it smells in their house. Whether it's the teenage boy's room with the smelly socks, or it's the uh, kitchen trash that smells like a dumpster, or it's the family room that smells like hamburgers, or the bathroom that smells like a porta potty. Okay, these are pretty bad smells. But in actuality, there's some uh, science and some uh, reasons why they use this as their marketing campaign. Uh, when Febreze was developed, the scientists realized that this product actually eliminates odors. They're not lying when they say that. Up until then, everything that you sprayed, you were just hoping it would be stronger than the smell that was in your house. So it would be, you'd try to get as much perfume on it to make, to, so you would smell the perfume and not the smelly fish. But it wasn't getting rid of the odor. But this product actually does get rid of it. So when they found that out, they were going to take it into homes to see how they could market it. So they took Febreze to people's homes, gave it to them, said, here, use this. This will eliminate odors in your house, and then we'll come back and see how things are going. So they'd come back, and they would go in their homes, and they would stink. There was, it smelled. And they would ask, well, didn't you use the stuff we gave you? Oh, yeah, I used it a couple of times. But it doesn't smell anymore, so I don't need to use it anymore. And that was, what are you talking about? But it was true. They were told that this is a product that eliminates odors. They didn't smell any odors, so they didn't need to use the product. Well, you're not going to sell much if people don't think they need it. And so they had to change their whole marketing campaign. So what they did is they put a scent in the product because when they originally made it, it didn't smell like anything. Because it didn't need to. It wasn't covering up anything. So they put a perfume in it so that when you do spray it now, you do get a scent. And they had to market it really at the beginning as something that you use at the end of your cleaning to make everything right. They found out that people who used it, if they would just squirt it in their room or squirt it in their kitchen, after they had cleaned, they were satisfied and felt like they had put the cherry on the top of their cleaning. Isn't that interesting? In fact, now they use the campaign Noseblind to talk about this effect of not being aware of the smells that are right in front of your nose. I think sometimes when it comes to sin, that's what happens. And so before I go any farther today in Malachi, I want us to take a moment to think about what in our life that is sin that's right in front of our face, that's right under our noses, that's a stench to God, but we don't smell it. I almost think that had to happen to the Israelites because it's so obvious to us. Maybe there's things in your life that would be obvious to others if they really knew you, 
but you're, hey, I'm okay with it. Think about the sin in your life that you have rationalized because everybody else does it. Or sin that you've rationalized because you say, well, God will forgive me. Or sin that you have rationalized because you said, well, that's my personality. Or sin that you have rationalized because that's how everybody in my family is. Or sin that you have rationalized that I just can't get over it. Sin that you have rationalized that you have come to the conclusion that this is just who I am. Sin that you have rationalized that now is so much a part of you, you couldn't even recognize it, get rid of it, confess or repent of it, because it's so ingrained in you. You're sin blind. The reason I want you to think about it now, because just like with the Febreze, if you don't think there's an odor, you're not going to buy the product that gets rid of odors. If you don't think there's any sin in your life that you need to get right, get out of your life, then you're not going to listen to the rest of what God says in Malachi. You're going to tune out and say, that's for sinners. <laughs> that's for my neighbor. Uh, that's for the person in the pew next to me, but that's not for me. So I don't want you to tune out. I want you to listen to what God says in Malachi to those who need to return to God. Now Malachi and God start with something that's dear to our hearts, and that's money. You're looking at the screen and saying, what the heck is that up there on the screen? Well, it's, it's supposed to be, if you go online, look at your bank account. Now, a lot of people still use checkbooks, but a lot of people are getting away from them, all right? I don't use a checkbook anymore. I'm online looking at things. But this is my point. Look at your checkbook. Look at your bank account. What you spend money on shows what you value, shows what's important to you. See, this is what God does to the people. The people say, God, why do we need to return to you? How do we turn to you? There's nothing wrong. He says, okay, I'm going to point out a big sin in your life. It's very easy to see. You can count it. It's quantifiable. It's obvious. I want you to see it so at least you can begin with this one and then maybe we get to some of the other ones. And the one that God begins with is their money, their giving, their disobedience in robbing God. Where your money is, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. That's what Jesus said. And it's true. Now, I know sometimes we think, well, gosh, I, I don't really have a, a lot of money. I don't have a lot of extra money. Well, even the things that you spend your money on, like uh, electricity and uh, heat, air conditioning, I mean, do you like those things? I do. I, I value them. That's why I spend my money on them. I guess I could live in a house without electricity, without heat, without uh, air conditioning, without running water. I could do that. But I value those things. That's why I spend money on them. So you, you can look at what you spend money on. It doesn't even have to go to the point of looking at, well, what do I spend my extra money on? You know, we don't have to go to look at how much money you spend on fast food or how much you spend on movies and entertainment or how much you spend on clothes you don't need. Or We don't have to go there, okay? You're going to simply look at what you spend money on and know exactly 
what is important to you, what you value. And that's what God did to the people. This is what God says to them. He says, well, before we get there, I can't forget Jesse DePlantis. Oh, my goodness. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. When we talk about money, Jesse DePlantis always, and guys like him, always get us pastors in trouble. He was the one, if you remember, last year who said that he needed a $54 million jet. Now, he already had three, but this was the fourth one. Now, you can't get them used for $20 million. Okay, so I don't know if you were looking in the market to get one or not. But he was saying that he needed a jet. Now, what's special about this jet is you can go anywhere on the planet without having to refuel. So he was ready to go and preach the gospel anywhere in the world that God would take him. And so he needed this jet so he could do it. And in fact, he said that if Jesus were here on earth today, he wouldn't be riding on a donkey. I guess Jesus would be in a $54 million jet, is what he was saying. So if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for him. And he said, to, he said as he was giving his testimony, God told him to believe this jet. He said, God, I can't buy this jet. And he said, God told him, I didn't tell you to buy the jet. I told you to believe that you're going to get this jet. So he was testifying about how God was telling him to get this and that he was going to get it. And you know how a lot of these televangelists uh, are blessed because they tell their listeners, if you want to be blessed by God, you give money to the televangelist. And when you do that, God is going to bless you. And so I guess, I don't know, I, I tried to find out if he ever got his jet. But in the end, these guys, as they talk about money and about jets... When preachers, pastors start talking about money, I say, oh, there's that pastor that's always talking about money. Church is always talking about money. They're just like old Jesse, asking for money. Well, the reason that preachers talk about money is because God talks about money. And preachers should talk about everything that God talks about. And God talks about money here in Malachi 3.8. When he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Isn't that silly? God doesn't need any of our money. And how can you rob God? And why would you even try to rob God? And when I think about even the people nowadays, I hear in the news every once in a while someone who's gone to a church as a burglar to steal from the church. There's a couple of things that come to mind. One is, how low are you if you're stealing from a church? You know, I mean, if, if I were, even if I didn't believe in God and I was a thief, that would kind of be the, you know, just in case there is a God, you know, just in case uh, he might judge me, maybe I should stay away from his house and let's find someone else to rob. But this is what I really think about. What do they think they're going to find in a church? You know, are they going to, they're trying to usually fence electronics and things like that. Where are they going to find a 1990s television in a church? You know, are they going to find a 1985 computer? I mean, they're not going to find the best stuff in most churches. So I don't know what they're trying to find. Certainly not going to find a lot of cash there, are they? But anyway, uh, they were trying to rob God. They say, God, we're not robbing you. How are we doing it? This is what God says. But not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you, 
so that it will not ruin the produce of your land. And your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God said, you are robbing me, Israelites, or people of Judah, because you're doing this. I have commanded you to give me a tenth, 10%, a tithe. I have commanded it, and you have not done it. You have disobeyed. Your disobedience is sin. That's why you're being cursed. They said, how can we return to you, God? He's telling them, here's one easy way. You can count it. You can count what a tenth is. Start counting it and start giving it. And that will be a way that you can return to me. Notice what was happening. Most people don't give because they think if they don't give, they'll have more. That kind of makes sense if you do arithmetic. You know, if you have $100 and you give $10 away, now you've only got 90 So you, you think, well, now I've got only 90 When I had 100 now I've got less. But notice what happened to them. They were keeping the produce, the animals, the things that God had told them to give, they were keeping it, hoping to have more. Well, in fact, they were getting less because God was not allowing the crops to be fruitful. There were devourers. There was pestilence or, or locusts or drought, things that were diminishing the yield of what they were planting. So, in fact, they had less when they were keeping it for themselves. And God says, if you will give what you are commanded to give, those devourers, I'll get rid of them. There won't be any drought. There won't be any locusts. There won't be any insects. There won't be anything that's stealing and taking away what you're planting and growing. I'll take that away. And I, on top of that, I will bless you. So if they would give what they were commanded to give, God was going to doubly bless them by taking away everything that was robbing them and then blessing them on top of it. So in God's mathematics, when you give away, you get back in return more than what you gave. Now this is where the Jesses get it wrong, okay? Because they say, you give me $100, God's going to give you $200. If you give me $54 million, God is going to give you $100 million. What God says is he's going to bless he doesn't say it's going to be in Andrew Jackson's and Abraham Lincoln's, not with cash, but he is going to bless. How he's going to bless, exactly how he's going to bless, that's up to God. But he does promise blessing. So, I want you to see very quickly we get lost in the weeds. But I do want you to see where God had commanded in the Old Testament for the Israelites and the people of Judah to give a tenth. In Leviticus 27, God said a tenth of their grain, their fruit, their animals were to be given to him. Now, the animals they couldn't redeem, they couldn't buy back. But the, the fruit and the grain they could, if they wanted to keep it, they didn't have to give it to God, but they had to give God the equivalent of 120% of what it was worth. So again, if it was $100 worth of grain, they could keep it, but they'd have to give to God $120. Okay? 
That was in Leviticus 27. Numbers 18, they were supposed to give a tenth to the Levites. The Levites, in turn, gave a tenth of that to the priests and also as an offering to God. In another passage in Deuteronomy 14, they're told to bring a tenth to the temple of their produce and animals. But notice what they're supposed to do with it. They're supposed to eat it. I don't know how this practically worked out. Unless you were very, very poor, you probably would have a lot of stuff if you had a tenth. You know, a tenth of all the stuff they grew, a tenth of all their animals, and they have to eat it all. Okay, so that was, that's what they were commanded to do, to bring it to the temple, really to have a party, in a sense, with the priests. They're celebrating the, the bounty that God had given them. And if they, it was too far away, imagine if you're having to drive animals that far and collect that much produce and bring it. It can be a burden. So God said, don't bother bringing the actual stuff. Convert it into cash. Bring the cash to Jerusalem. Buy whatever you want and bring it in feast and celebrate to the Lord. Now, I've heard lots of sermons about tithing, but I've never heard any preacher talk about taking a 10% and then going and buying whatever you want and having a big party. Okay, so maybe we should do that some more. I don't know. But that's there in Deuteronomy 14 too. And then this one as well. Every three years they were to not take the tenth to the temple, but a tenth to the uh, local area. So maybe it was the government that oversaw it or the Levites that were in the town oversaw it. But this money was for the poor. It was for the needy. It was for the widows, the orphans, and even for the Levites because they didn't have a means, they didn't have any land. So the Levites couldn't grow their own food, couldn't raise their own animals because God said they weren't to have any land of their own but the Israelites throughout the nation were to take care of them. So here in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, Leviticus, it's clear that God commanded Israelites to give a tenth. We could get into the weeds, as you can see. That was, I had, that was four verses, ten, 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 ten. Is it, you know, which ten, how often ten? This one's every three years ten. I'm not going to go there this morning. The point is this, a tenth. A tithe. They were supposed to give it, and they weren't doing it. And God said, you're robbing me. Now, what about us who are Christians? We're not Israelites. We don't live in Judah or Jerusalem. There's no temple to go take our animals to. What has God commanded of us who are Christians and what we are to do with our money? We often think about giving to God as putting money in an offering plate. And as I was looking for pictures of offering plates, I found it interesting that most of them had dollar bills in them. So that tells you something right there. I don't know if that means that's the photographer's problem or that's church's problems. But notice in this plate, there's a dollar bill prominent. And there's a big giver giving a $5 bill on top of that he's putting in the plate. I couldn't find any pictures where $100 bills were going in the plate. So I, I, I don't know what that means. I'm just saying what I found when I was looking for pictures. But I think this is some place where we as Christians get our focus wrong. The only place we give is not just in an offering plate. We give, but we are to give, I believe, a lot. We are to be generous. We are to give Often we are to give in many places. When Malachi talks about bringing the tithe to the storehouse, there were literal rooms in the temple complex where they put the produce. The storehouse today is not the church. 
So we are not commanded to bring all of our money to the church, to bring our gifts to the church. I would encourage you to think about where you can give besides the church. I encourage you to think about all the places, how much you can give, how, like I said, how often. The, the command to the Christian is to give and to give generously. If you're giving generously, that's not going to just be one place one time a week. Think about the Christian ministers, the ministries, the ministries that help the poor, help the needy. They're not all here at Olive Branch. Uh, we give really for the same reasons that the Israelites were told to give. They were told to give to support the temple, the worship of God. They were told to give to support the Levites and the priests who oversaw the worship of God. In the New Testament, we're told to give to support ministers who share the gospel and who teach and who lead churches. So we are told to give, like the Israelites were, to give to support the ministries that glorify God and support the ministers. We're told also to help the needy. That's why the Israelites were told to give, to help those that were in need. Paul took a collection from all the churches who voluntarily gave to this collection, but it was for the needy in Jerusalem. And in that context, Paul tells us that Jesus is our example. And I love the verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, because Paul tells us, Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake. So if he was rich and he became poor, then we should be motivated to give to help those who are poor and to help the needy because we have been richly blessed with our salvation and with our life in Christ. So if we are to give to ministries and to ministers and to the needy, uh, that's lots of places. So I encourage you to give in lots of places. Give a lot. Give in many places. Give often. Are Christians commanded to give a tenth? No, we're not, because we're not Israelites. We're not under the law of Moses. But we're commanded to give generously. I truly believe that giving generously sounds more than 10% to me. And so what I'm saying is just throw out the percentages altogether and have in mind generously and have in mind where God leads you to give. Now, some of us may need some help, and we don't hear very well. So we don't, maybe we don't hear God telling us where to give. And maybe our idea of generous is different than others. I, I, I mean, if you've ever been a server in a restaurant, you know that's true, isn't it? Okay? So, so maybe you do need some help. So if you want some help, you want to start with a certain percentage to help you learn, to help you give, to help you get in the habit. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to make it 5%, you want to make it 10%, you want to make it 30%, if you want to do that, then do that. But the command is not to give a certain percent, it's to give generously. It's to give whatever we decide. We have freedom. We have freedom to give as we want, generously, in proportion to what we have. That makes complete sense. Someone who has a lot of money, lots of things, should be giving a lot. Someone who is poor 
can't give as much as someone who's rich if you're talking an absolute value of gifts and money. So they're not expected to give as much. Give regularly. As I've shared with you before, this is what the government does to us. So if the government does it to us, we should <laughs> take advantage of what they're doing to us and think of that same principle as we're giving to God. You know this to be the case. If you, it, you know, when it's tax time, April 15th, if you got a tax bill for all of the previous year and say you owe this now, who would be able to pay that? None of us would. You know, I don't care how much tax you pay, you would not be able to pay it one day, April 15th, for all of last year. So what does the government do? They take a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. Every week, every time you get paid, they take a little bit. And then by the end of the year, you say, oh my goodness, look how much they took. And then you get angry at how much they took. But anyway, they took it and it's paid for. This is the same idea with giving. It's hard to give one time $10,000. But if you gave a little bit every week, a little bit every month, and you were generous, you'd be surprised how quickly that adds up. So that's the point. That's the principle. Give joyfully. We never should give as though it's a burden or begrudgedly or because we just feel like God has commanded us, oh, well, well, here i got to do this. And at times we should give sacrificially. The widow who put in her last two mites, everything she had, she didn't give 10%, she gave 100%. As I've told you before, if all of us gave 100%, we'd all be in a world of hurt, okay? Because we'd all be here tomorrow morning. All right, who's going to feed us now? You know, what's going to happen? We gave it all away. So there is, but there are times, I believe, that God is calling us to give until it hurts, or at least give until we lose something. We have to give up something so that others are blessed. If we're always just giving out of our extra. I don't, I don't consider that very generous because you're kind of just giving leftovers. You know, if you're just always giving, you know, you're having big meals and you're just always giving the leftovers, those are appreciated, but is it really a sacrifice for you? No. So at times, and every once in a while, just try it. Giving until it hurts. I know I shared this with you before, but at one church I was at, we did say, we're going to give you three months, and the goal is, if you can do it, to give the equivalent of one whole paycheck. So again, not 10%, 100%. But you had warning, you had time to save it up. But again, this was the idea, to give sacrificially. You'd have to give up some stuff, and not just extra coffee or, or extra trip to something that you enjoy. I mean, you'd have to actually give up some things that may be pretty necessary, so that you could save up that much. And give 100% at one time. That's giving sacrificially. Now I want to return as I conclude to what I said at the beginning. Because some of you might be sitting here and saying, Pastor, I've heard this. And I'm thankful that God has taught me this lesson. And I am all of these. You're a generous, proportional, regular, joyful, and sacrificial giver. And you, or you're saying, thanks for sharing. And all these other people around me, they need to hear this. They need to they get in gear. Then you've missed the point. Remember, this was an example. This was one sin. This was to get the people working on something that was easy to identify and kind of obvious. Especially for them, they could count it. 
Were they given 10%? It was a yes or no question. You can't get any easier than that. So I, that's why I said at the beginning, I wanted you to think about what's in your life that God is revealing to you that you have been too comfortable with or have rationalized this sin so that it's part of you. And it's time to return. It's time to return to God. The people in Malachi's day, some of them did listen, and some of them did return. It says in Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. These people heard, they repented, they obeyed, and they made a contract with each other to keep each other accountable, and they wrote down what they were going to do so that God would be pleased. And God saw it. He listened, and He was pleased, and He promised that He would bless them. And so now is the time. I'm going to pray, but I'm also going to have just a moment of of silence to give you even more time to think, to hear God, if you need to, to confess, to repent. So let's do that right now. Father, I am thankful that you are a God who does want us close to you. You're not a God that's far away. You're not a God who doesn't care. You are a God who wants us right there beside you or right behind you as you're leading us. I thank you for that, God. And I confess in my life how at times, Lord, it's not my desire to be close to you, but it's my desire to do what I want to do. And Lord, I know any time that's my attitude, that does lead to sin in my life. And Lord, I know every time we sin, that takes us away from you. Lord, I pray this morning we are not comfortable people in our place far from you, that we are not comfortable with our sin. Lord, I pray right now that you are moving in us so that we cannot be satisfied unless our sin is gone and we're close to you. And so I pray right now, Lord, that you would speak loudly, clearly to us. And I pray that we would humbly before you confess our sin, repent and turn from it, and come back to you. God, I know that every step we take from you as we sin gets us farther and farther from you. But I also know this, Lord. All it takes is one step back. One prayer. One humble heart. One confession brings us right back to you. So I pray, Lord, that right now we would do so, that we would leave your house this morning close to you, all of us back home. 
And Lord, right now, in the silence that's about to happen, I pray you would speak and we would listen and obey.